Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And this is Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. Today we are very fortunate to have Dr. Joseph Wood of the Institute of World Politics and the Cana Academy uh, joining us. So, hey, Dr. Wood, thanks for, thanks for coming. Thank you. Great to be here talking with you. Uh, we'd love to start with uh, a little plug for the Institute of World Politics because uh, we think it's got some uh, definitely resonance with what we do on the Combat and Classics podcast and also with our listeners. So, Joe, we'd love to kind of just hear you talk a little bit about IWP and its mission. Well, IWP, Institute of World Politics, is located in downtown Washington. And we are a standalone accredited institution, not affiliated with any other university, but we offer master's and now doctorate degrees uh, involving strategic issues, foreign policy, intelligence, basically those kinds of issues that are for people who are interested in working in those kinds of issues. Some in the private sector, mostly in the government sector. Uh, and we get a wide range of students from around the world who find it interesting to be in Washington, interesting to study with people on the faculty who have had experience in all those areas, policy, other areas as well. Try to teach them as miniature great books classes, not uh, certainly not like the full up St. John's uh, curriculum, but as some version of that to introduce where we get the idea that there might be such a thing as truth and the truth is intelligible. We've got the possibility of understanding it, and I think the great books are a great way to, to deal with that. And the other institution I mentioned is Cana Academy, C-A-N-A Academy, that focuses on classical education, obviously with a tie for what you all do, some work on teacher training, but very much interested in the great books and the role they can play in a, in a good education. Great. We're, we're pretty pro-great books over here at Combat Classics, <laughs> so we love, we love finding other organizations. Glad to be at home. Yeah. So we also, we, so the reading that Joe picked today is uh, Pierre Menaz's uh, The Metamorphoses of the City. And we're going to be doing chapter two of that, The Poetic Birth of the City. So Joe, if you want to kind of give us a little rationale for why you selected this reading and, and a little bit of a synopsis, I think that'd be a great way to start us off. All right. Well, the, the truth is I did my dissertation on Pierre Menon. And so I've put, you know, sort of three years of my life into this kind of stuff. And so now I'm going to inflict it on you. But it's actually a pretty good thing. It's a great work, actually. I think it will be something that over the course of the time people are going to come back to. And Menon himself relies on great works as his way of understanding what he's trying to do. What he's trying to do is understand at the broadest level what it is to be human. He's a contemporary French philosopher. He's still working very vigorously, just has a book out recently translated into English on um, natural right, natural law and human rights. But his main project over the course of his career has been to understand what he calls political form and the relationship between political form and what it is to be human, what it is to thrive, what it is to, as Aristotle would say, seek and be happy as our telos, as what it is we're supposed to be about as human beings, what we are for the sake of as human beings. Menon's an interesting character. He was born in the early 1950s. His father was a Marxist in France, which was not terribly unusual at that time. And so Menon grew up with that. But he had a high school teacher, a lycée instructor, who introduced him to Thomas Aquinas, which introduced him to faith, which plays a role in his life, but not for his work, the primary role, and introduced him as well via Thomas Aquinas to classical philosophy. And after going off to Paris and studying in Paris for a while, Menant made a very interesting, to me at least, intellectual decision 
Uh, some people are just kind of drawn into the classics. He made a very conscious decision, I suppose, drawn into them, but drawn to take a classical point of view on what it is to be human and what politics is all about. <clears throat> and so Menot sees politics as human action par excellence. It's the most clear, most human form of choice and action that we take ourselves. He goes about that in a lot of different ways. He's got kind of two simultaneous tracks of research. One, the history of political events. The other, the history of political philosophy. And so that gets him straight into the kinds of works that you have dealt with on your website that I've seen your other podcasts uh, deal with. And in particular into Aristotle. And at one point later in his, not in the book we're talking about today, but later on, he says that his really true project is to try to integrate, bring together the ancient political cycle from aristocracy, a good government, to oligarchy, bad government, to democracy, bad government, and ultimately to tyranny, and the modern democratic political cycle, all together under Aristotle's axiom that man is a political animal. So what we're seeing here is his jump into the first political form, which is city. Political form's a vague term, but he relies on it throughout his work. And it's really just the broadest understanding of how we associate ourselves together for a common operation or a common good. So Menon has five political forms in mind, and he's thinking mainly about Europe and by extension to some degree with the United States, but they're the city, by which he really means Athens, to some degree Sparta, empire, which tries to bring everything under its domain, it's more universal form, and for him, the empire that's relevant in Europe is obviously Rome. Then the nation or the nation state that develops from the early Christian kings through sort of the time of the Protestant Revolution, Reformation, and a little bit after that, and then into the modern state. And then he sets aside the Catholic Church as kind of a political form as well, which doesn't directly govern in most cases, in some cases it does, but mostly exerts a pressure against which the nation form responds, the secular desire of secular leaders to be in charge of what's going on down here against the church's interest in the salvation of souls, which is its primary concern. And he sees the progression through, uh, through political form as really the way to understand the political development of Europe. Now, the book that we've got in front of us now, Metamorphoses of the City, is sort of his great work on political form. And he's treated these different political forms in his earlier works, but one of the main things that he introduces just before the part that we're going to talk about is the idea that <clears throat> of all the changes in political form, the metamorphoses that go on in political form, the main change, the biggest change, the grand change is the leap into the city. That's the transcendent change where we actually become political at the same time we become rational and we become the humans that we really are, we're really meant to be. And so I hope that's not too much of a background for you. Sorry, it was a bit of a monologue, uh, but I think with that, we're hopefully in a little better shape to understand what it is he's trying to say in this chapter. Why is it that this development of the city is so important. Yeah, thanks. That's that's very helpful. I was um, 
uh, a little concerned jumping in here. And now on, on one level, my concern has gotten greater because clearly <laughs> you're, you've got a greater acquaintance with this writer and with this text than I do. But the thing that jumped out at me, and it's <clears throat> going to get us right into this issue of what was achieved in the transition to the city, um, is a passage about a little bit more than halfway through the reading. It's on page 56, if any of our readers have the text and can follow on. Um, and uh, I was going to ask Brian to read it to use his great radio voice. Brian, you know the passage I have in mind. Would you mind reading it for us? Sure. One last but very important remark is in order. It can be seen that philosophy and revealing the distance between law and nature, the city and the world, preserves or restores in the element of peace what war brought to light, but without understanding it. And thanks. And Manon makes this last but very important remark, having laid out a series of dichotomies uh, between what uh, war exposes and what peace exposes, right? Between the exterior and the interior of the city. Um, and so I was uh, drawn to this passage because it seems to speak uh, pretty directly to the mission of our podcast, uh, which is a linking of combat or war and classics or philosophy. And I w wondered if we couldn't start with a question something like this. Um, does it seem to us that Manon is saying that uh, war um, and whatever insights it brings can be domesticated and brought inside the city if the city somehow practices or has philosophy in it. That's, uh, that's great. I would have a very hard time improving on that, so I'll just try to say it a little bit differently, if I can. You know, the two great concerns of uh, political uh, philosophy, ancient philosophy, were law and nature. Most of the philosophers before Socrates were natural philosophers. They wanted to know how physical things came about, what the physical universe was like, the cosmos was like. And Socrates, in his, his second sailing that he describes in Phaedo and also in the Republic, says, I moved away from that kind of understanding of cause to an understanding that amounts to philosophy, the higher causes, truth, beauty, and goodness as the forms, as causes and things. Um, what Manon is talking about in that quotation that, that uh, we read is this idea that the city, the political association, the first political form, is so extraordinary because it sublimates warfare to the possibility of a common good. And when we talk about a common good these days, Aristotle understood that to be, you know, the telos of the city that had priority over the telos of all other natural relationships, uh, husband and wife, um, village, household, village. But the city had a telos. It's, it's for the sake of, was for the sake of living well, not just living, but living well. And he says that several places throughout the politics. That comes about, in Manon's view, not initially because everyone sits down and has a nice time saying, let's have the common good. Wouldn't it be a nice thing? But it comes about in the section, as you saw, <clears throat> as really it's described in the Iliad, in what happens in the Greek camp, where you have uh, Agamemnon, Achilles, as the Athenians who have come, the Greeks who have come to try to rescue Helen. And they've been in the Greek camp for nine years. So they're sort of a society unto themselves. And yet they're not a political society quite yet. They're going to turn out to be a pre-political society. But they have some interesting capacities, Menon thinks. In particular, they have a capacity for silence. 
they can be quiet, they can reflect among themselves and they can reflect, sorry, as themselves and they can reflect with each other. They can have a council and other groups can do that, but the Athenians are a little better able to in that way. And these are the virtuous warriors who will eventually defeat Troy. And when Troy is defeated uh, and Achilles is confronted with having destroyed, killed his great enemy Hector, he initially defames the body of Hector, causes it to be dragged about. But then later on, Achilles comes to a realization somehow that Hector should be returned for the proper burial honors of, of Troy, and he allows that to happen. Menon argues that is a key recognition. It's a recognition that the other is, like me, a mortal. And we are defined in some ways as humans by our mortality. So there is something there that we recognize in the other. And it's almost as if that is a leap to rationality that becomes the basis or the possibility of a leap to politics. And so when, uh, when the virtuous warriors of Athens return home, they bring to the city in this mythology of Homer in the Iliad, the possibilities of deliberation and the possibility of rational consideration of what's going on around you. Maybe this body there, Hector, is a mortal like me. They wind up being the wealthy of Athens and their descendants as the aristocracy wind up being the wealthy of Athens, not really in the material sense of being having lots of money, sometimes they did, but in the sense of having had honors and having had religious offices, tombs, those kinds of things. That was the real wealth of the aristocracy. And they are in many ways at war with those who are not the aristocracy. Call them what you will, the mass, the mobs, the poor. And you have this then war within Athens, within the city. And at that point, it becomes possible to imagine a common good for the whole city. Now, again, we're not imagining here some shining city on a hill with a wonderful set of political institutions. We're imagining a very basic sublimation of warfare to the possibility of politics. And it's that understanding of politics that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle begin to take up, in particular Aristotle, as far as Menon's concerned, and becomes the possibility of the city. The city is something that is a search for a common good. This, we're political animals, which we are all, and we're just to be our nature, by nature we are political animals, where we can come together and seek a common good, or at least something better than warfare. Now again, I'm sorry if I'm droning on too much. My professorial habits are, are uh, coming out too much, so don't hesitate to, to quiet me down and tell me when to be quiet. Well, let me ask you a question then, and I'm, I'm putting you in the position of speaking for Manon here. So uh, with the risks involved in that, uh, it seemed to me that there were maybe two different accounts he was giving about the origin of the common good or the origin of the concern with the common good. Um, one seemed to me to be narrowly and necessarily um, military. Uh, based on war and the other one it wasn't so clear to me. So let me just lay out the two um, Okay, there's the one that comes 
internally from the experience of the warrior when the warrior realizes he can't bury himself. Uh, and this, of course, strikes Achilles, right? He gives this account of Achilles on the one hand uh, being unable to accept the death of Patroclus, and on the other hand, oddly enough, being unable to accept the, the death of Hector either. Yeah. And that's his account of why um, Achilles inflicts these uh, atrocities on the body of Hector uh, and on uh, uh, bystanders like the Trojan youth. Um, on the other hand, uh, and so that, that realization, I should say, on the part of the warrior is what makes the warrior realize that there is a common good, that his body be buried, and maybe that he be remembered in song and so on. Yeah, and that if, if not a common good, him. at least a common characteristic, a common human characteristic of mortality that merits something other than doing what you will with your enemy. Right, and that insight projects the warrior into the political. Exactly. Right? I mean, um, the possibility of the political. This happens, you know, sort of very, in an attenuated, graduated way over the course of time. But well, you're, you're basically exactly on track. I'm just thinking too much about my thoughts. So go ahead. <laughs> well, so here's the alternative, which is, uh, you know, that story is the, the whole story of the Iliad and maybe especially the story of the end of the Iliad, right, when Achilles comes to the insight. But there's also the story of the beginning of the Iliad, where it looks like the intrusion of the divine and the divine claims about justice on the human justice of the distribution of goods in the, in the Greek camp, that also raises almost immediately the question of a common good, right? When Achilles says, there's no common store of stuff around here yeah. that we can redistribute to solve our problems. Um, is one the serious uh, account of the origin of the common and the other one an accident? Or are these two ways? Well, I would say they're not competing ways. I think one precedes the other. What you see in the, the uh, Athenian camp is, again, the possibility of deliberation and the possibility of silence. They actually, they can retreat in silence and they help each other out when they're in retreat, Menon points out. They, they have a regard for the other that is interesting to him. Other cities may have had that. The Trojans may have had it as well. But you also have this tremendous conflict between Agamemnon and Achilles over uh, prices, over, you know, over uh, Achilles' great prize, which he has to give up. But he does give her up mm -hmm. to Agamemnon. He doesn't just split the group into a civil war. He withdraws his own support for a while, but he doesn't destroy the Greek camp because his prize has been taken away. So there's a notion of authority, a very basic, primary notion of authority there that can come into force later on. It presents the possibility of coming into force that the Athenians have later on. Again, Troy had some notion of authority as well, but this possibility that Achilles displays there and then more acutely later, as you talked about in uh, how he treats the body of Hector or allows Hector to be seen. Those are, uh, you know, it might say they're, to use a big word, propedeutic or preparatory to Politics, you have to have those attitudes in order to get to something that the city will be. The city, as Menon understands it, really doesn't exist at this time. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking at the Greek camp. It's the prelude or the, the preliminary to what politics might be able to become if it happens to go in the direction that it did somehow in this very strange way in Athens to become something that becomes Big, uh, uh, capable of understanding a bigger common good. Does that help out? Well, it, it does, but let me just press you one step further then. W would you say it follows from that, that it's um, 
accidental rather than necessary that the poetic birth of the city, the Greek city, is in a war epic, right? In other words, there could be some other... Yeah, sorry, um, no, I understand your question yeah, a little yeah. better. Yeah. No, no, I think it's necessary. Yeah. I think it has to come from war. It can, because what, we, what politics is going to do with philosophy is, to use the word again, sublimate warfare into something other than warfare doesn't sublimate it right away in Athens into Western political institutions of the 20th and 21st century, but it sublimates them into a tolerable situation where you can begin to think of something other than yourself. I think it would probably be wrong to say that uh, the Greek camp or that Athens before, uh, before this happens represents is some sort of Hobbesian state of nature. That's not what Menalt would agree with and not, I think, what the Iliad is trying to depict. But it is true that it's not at all the same as the politics that will be able to come about when we make this transcendent leap to understand through our new rationality, remember, our new political nature, our new rationality, that the other is mortal, mm -hmm. that there is something human, there is something of a human nature that demands recognition, and that politics becomes how we work out the differences over that overlay the top that are accidental in some ways uh, to what the human nature actually is. But no, it's absolutely right. I think that if we did not have uh, warfare, we would not have politics. And by the way, I think, you know, that gets reinforced a little bit in Plato's Republic. Oh so yeah. You, uh, if I go off a little bit on a slight tangent here, but when Plato, when Socrates builds the first city, He's trying to understand what justice is by looking at something big. So he talks about, I'll talk about the city. And he builds what he calls the healthy city. It's small, it's compact. Very big feature of the city for Manon is that it's compact. You can see it, it's surveyable. But um, Socrates in the Republic says, this is the city, it's gonna be compact. Basically people's needs are met. They don't have much more than they need, but they're content and life goes on for generation after generation. And then his friends say, no, that's the city for pigs. We don't want that. We reject that. We want a lot more stuff. And they go into all the stuff they want. And Socrates says, well, that's kind of crazy. You know, that's uh, the unhealthy, fevered city that you're telling me about now. But the first thing that happens when he starts talking about that city, he's going to try to bring philosophy into that city, the city in speech, which becomes the republic for the rest of the dialogue. The first thing that happens is you need defenders of the city, the guardians, because it expands and it's going to encounter other cities and there's going to be warfare. So Socrates and Plato bring in this notion that the first phenomenon of politics, aside from human want, is warfare. And I think the account of the Iliad that Manant gives in this, this chapter is very consonant with that understanding in the Republic. There's even to, that. Oh, go ahead, Brian. I'd just like to understand a little bit more when you talk about the idea that um, I think you said earlier on that we become rational um, once we once we form the city. Kind of at or the same time. At the same time, we become political. Okay. All political uh, and rational really go together. That's what's truly human. So that. I, when you mentioned that, I was thinking about um, the laws, Plato's The Laws, when he's yeah. explaining that, you know, kind of teasing about the two constitutions, the Spartan constitution and yeah. the guy at Corinthian. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm digging into the back of my Plato B-side memory. Um, 
but he talked, you know, they ask him about, you know, the forming of the city and I think it's book two. Um, and you know, the, the forming of the laws and Socrates goes, well, when everybody just kind of like lives on their own, they just understand justice. Like they don't really need laws because they get it. Um, and so it, it seems like in Plato's conception, and it makes a little bit of sense to me that like we kind of understand this before the city. So I'm wondering what, when you say that we become rational, when we become political, I'm not understanding that kind of change in how our reason works necessarily, yeah. because it, it seems like it should work in, in the city or out of the city. Yeah, I was looking at the laws just last week, but unfortunately I did not look at that particular part of it. But I think most of the, the pre-political parts of the laws that I recall deal with what amounts to family. These are uh, pa- uh, patrons and their families, and that's the political organization that's there. And in a sense, you know, there is a justice that's defined and set down by the patriarch of the family. That, I think both Plato and, not certainly Menon would say, is pre-political. That comes before what we think of as political. It's not as if people couldn't think before there was politics, but the truly rational kind of action that is seeking a common good in a common operation that fulfills our nature as political, social beings, that only comes with politics. And it requires this leap on the part of somebody in the account that Menon gives, it's on the account of the the aristocrats, the aristocracy in Athens, who were again, not terribly wealthy necessarily, but wealthy in religious background, religious honors and the honors of having come home. When they begin to realize the possibility that there might be something common with the people in the city that they were constantly at war with, then you have a possibility of sublimating that warfare to something good. And that's what requires philosophy. That's the first element of wisdom. Okay, now keep in mind, they aren't, they aren't doing Aristotle back then. And they're not doing Socrates and Plato back then. These, these guys are just trying to imagine, well, I know that Hector, my old enemy, was immortal. I realized that. Everybody around me is immortal. I realize that. Maybe there's a way we can sublimate some of this. I don't think they would use the word sublimate. Maybe there's a way we can take this conflict and reduce it, pacify it a little bit by, I, I would say, blame me for this, not men on, by developing and applying some wisdom, some philosophy. And it's very, very basic. The idea that maybe there could be a good for all of us that means we don't have to fight all the time. But I think it does have to come out of the fight. It has to come out of combat. Is the change that you're thinking about, Joe, illustrated to some extent by the difference between Odysseus and Socrates? Uh, Manon presents Odysseus as a kind of preform of Socrates, right? And Odysseus's life is a kind of the preform of the Socratic life. Um, and presumably then Odysseus's form of reason is not quite the full reason that the political community is capable of, right. that's directed toward the community. We have Odysseus who goes by the name Nobody, um, and we have Socrates who won't leave Athens. Is that the, the difference somehow in there in that comparison? You can certainly make that argument. I'm not going to tell you I'm smart enough to affirm that or deny it one way or the other. Socrates 
famously does not leave Athens, even under threat of execution. He does go off and fight. It's a hoplite in the Peloponnesian War, so he has, he has some experience outside the city. But what, what you've raised is something that Menant talks about as a characteristic of the city, the political form of the city that precedes empire, precedes nation. And that's its concentration. It has limits, it has boundaries, and you can see the whole city. Or if not, you can walk around it and see it within a few hours or a day. You know everyone in the city, at least by face. So it's kind of a small place, it's very limited. But the effect of that, Manon believes, is that you get political action in its purest, most intense way in the city. Once the empire comes in, the empire is not limited. Its entire form is about being unlimited to, to exert domain and domination over as many people as possible, as far as you can go. It's, it's the anti-limit political form. And as a result of that, politics in the empire becomes somewhat distended. It's less intense, which also means philosophy becomes less intense. Now, Manant doesn't say this, but I would kind of note that you don't get too much original philosophy in Rome, especially after its transition to empire from city. Cicero does his wonderful work, Seneca and others, but a lot of that, most of that is, uh, it's kind of cultural appropriation. They're bringing in Athens for into Latin and trying to make it uh, Roman and make it serve people. That's a, I'm not saying they're doing a bad thing, but they are trying to... Uh, under, basically combining what several of the Greeks had said from Stoics to the Peripatetics and various forms of Hellenic thought. But Rome as an empire doesn't do a lot of philosophy, does a lot of law to sort of keep things under control, does a lot of administration, a lot of military stuff. But the real philosophy and the real political action take place in the city, in Athens, because it's small, it's compact, it's limited, and its action is therefore intense. And that's why civil war within a city is really bad. Nowhere for it to go. So um, I'm having, uh, sorry, <laughs> you know, the, the, the idea of, I'm still wrestling with this. I'm listening along, but I'm still wrestling with this idea of the human um, and that to yeah. be a mortal um, or at least to be a man requires that recognition of death. Yeah. Um, and so this is, you know, on page 46 of Manat. Uh, it is only when one recognizes that honor is due to all corpses, including those of the enemies, that one is at last a man. Achilles, the son of a goddess and a mortal, has, was born a hero. He lived as a hero. At the end of the Iliad, as his death nears, he has completed his education, his education in humanity. He has become a man. He is at last a mortal. Right. And I, I'm not sure I understand what Manat's getting at there because it seems to me that defining what he, what he seems to be stretching for is something like um, burial rights are just that one line. It is only when one recognizes that honor is due to all corpses, including those of the enemies that one is at last a man. Yeah. And well, I feel like that presupposes that if, if you don't understand that you are not man. So what are you before that? Like, yeah. What are you in that not man formulation? Uh, in the part that you just described, Menant is drawing from his earlier discussion of the fact that in, in the ancient world, people were, or sorry, beings were either gods or men or animals. 
but it wasn't a stable arrangement. The gods were always taking animal forms, running around doing human things, and you found combinations of men and animals, in physical combinations, I mean, the Minotaur, for example, in ancient thinking and ancient uh, myth. The big leap, one of the big leaps to philosophy, Menon says, is when, in a sense, these things stabilize, and the gods are gods, the men are men, and the animals are animals, and the gods quit becoming sort of combinations of animals and people, or men quit becoming combinations of other things. And so again, in, the, in all of the Platonic dialogues, most of them, Socrates, the one before Socrates is speaking, he's always looking for an opinion that doesn't move around. And what goes on there, I think, really what Manant's describing is we, get a, we arrive at a point where we understand what it is that we are as humans. Uh, it, it certainly is our body, but what it really is is mortality. That's a key feature for us. And we understand that we aren't going to change into gods and we aren't going to change into animals, but there's going to be this stability among the beings that people have observed around them. So that's the first step is that, you know, we're not going to have this flux between uh, different kinds of beings. And then we can start to think about more of what our being is, what it is to be human. And mortal is a big part of that. Maybe the key feature of that, although animals are mortal too. But we are animals, as Aristotle says. That's good uh, to the extent that we might associate the savagery that comes with um, not acknowledging that you are mortal right. with uh, bestial behavior, yeah. right? animalian behavior. Uh, but should we also um, think that Achilles, before he has the necessary insight, is at risk of metamorphosing into a god? Right. In other words, there are behaviors where it looks like he uh, is acting as if he thought he was immortal and he's very close to being immortal. Right. So there might be some confusions in the other direction. Couldn't there be? Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. Um, <clears throat> it's not clear you know, that they know who or what they are at the start of the Athenian camp. The gods are all intervening in various ways. They have relationships with the mortals that are going on all the time. And so that I'm not, you know, I don't know to what degree Manon would say that stability of understanding what we are is there in the Greek camp. Uh, they know they're Greek, you know, they defend each other, they take care of each other. So they've got some at least tribal or pre-tribal loyalty to each mm -hmm. other. Uh, they don't extend that to the enemy, that kind of recognition yet. That'll be uh, the great insight that again, opens up the possibility of the city. But I don't know the answer to that question. It's a good question. I'm not sure, I, so far as I know, Manant doesn't comment on it, and I don't, mm -hmm. you know, I can't see my way immediately to a great answer. Mm -hmm. Sorry about that. No, no worries. Uh, so if we could shift gears for a little bit from the political theory or political philosophy approach to the international relations approach, I want to tease out uh, an implication, uh, I think, of, of what we're saying. Um, it looks like if uh, philosophy can somehow preserve the insight that comes from war, then the hope that our empire might lead to a situation where there are no more wars might not be terribly alarming, right? Because we get the same thing, but in a safe form, if I can put it that way, right? Yeah. Domesticated war as philosophy. 
But a little while ago, you made a very interesting remark that Manon thinks that uh, not only does political life become uh, more dispersed and less intense under the imperial setting, but philosophy does too. Right. So what should our position be or what should our thinking be if we're following Manon about the promise of a world without war? Well, yeah, I mean, your premise is obviously it's kind of straight out of Kant towards a perpetual peace. He talks about that as, as our reason develops really out of John Stuart Mill mm -hmm. as the same idea uh, in utilitarianism or in some, of, in some of his other writings. It comes out of Cicero. Cicero's famous comment of, of humanity as one big republic. Right. So the, the basic notion that you've got is there from very early on. Menant would argue that that's not going to happen. Uh, and the reason it's not going to happen is that a political form that would include all of humanity is impossible. That you no longer have the particular wherewithal that's necessary for an understanding of the common good when you have all of humanity implicated. It's certainly possible for people to cooperate, mm -hmm. certainly possible for people, for nations to cooperate. It's possible for nations to avoid war. But the idea that we would get to a single political form of, uh, all, that encompasses all humanity, Menant believes that basically goes in the other direction from our humanity that involves the particular as well as the universal, the common human nature. Now, there are a couple of other, Dan Mahoney has just written a book that, uh, he's a, a friend at least of, of Menant. He's written a, a terrific book on why this won't happen, why the idea of a universal political form won't come about. Um, Etienne Gilson, the French philosopher, mm -hmm. wrote an article right after World War II, actually in early 1950s, so basically right after World War II, which he, the title of the book is Metamorphoses of the City of God. Uh -huh. And what he talks about, obviously the, 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 this precedes Menon, obviously, but the title of the book is very striking given Menon's choice of Metamorphoses of the City. Or this title, but Gilson argues that as we've come out of World War II, a lot of people are arguing that we can now bring about, uh, you know, St. Augustine's City of God on earth by our own means, and Ed, Gilson rejects that as well. He thinks that's not going to happen. Uh, his reasons are both theological and philosophical for mm -hmm. claiming that. Menon's claim is, I think, primarily philosophical, that you just can't do it. You don't have the resources once you have all people trying to be one thing, you lack any kind of political resources. The particular is more important than that. Mm -hmm. Is the power of the particular, uh, does it come from the sense that there's an outside pressing in and threatening the particular? And so that's what uh, gives it its um, strength and holding together, yeah, but without that juice? outside? Yeah, what gives yeah. it its juice, sure. Yeah, uh, no, that's it's a good thought and you know, the, Separation from the other causes a lot of problems, mm -hmm. obviously, over the course of history. Oh, yeah. Uh, and um, the search then is for a political form that allows you to be fully human. Manon thinks it's the nation, at least in Europe. That was the political form that seemed most suitable for Europe, despite the, uh, you know, the record of the 20th century or even the 19th and 20th centuries or the Thirty Years' War, despite a lot of warfare in there, it was, it was 
at least before 500 years ago, the, the political form that was most suitable for Europe and since then has offered the greatest possibility for people to thrive. And that once you get into a universal political form, you would in some sense, hypothetically, lose that pressure from the outside because there would be no outside. But I think you must be right that it's that pressure from the outside that forces us in some way to be human, mm -hmm. to recognize our own particularity. And that is involved in our thriving as is as much as any as much as the notion of a universal human nature. So if I am uh, American and not Chinese, I share a common human nature with the Chinese, but I share a particularity that's different as well. And I can definitely go go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, I mean I can definitely see that um, as a a step from Manat, and I think that he and this is just humble Brian Wilson talking, uh, shares a mischaracterization of economics with Plato, right? And you already brought this up in The Republic where, you know, um, Plato's talking about the ideal state and um, the name escapes me right now. One of his interlocutors is like, I want a footstool. How do I get a footstool, Socrates, in this, you know, idealized state? Because it doesn't seem like there's a footstool maker. I got to do everything myself. I can't make a footstool. And, you know, Socrates goes, oh, you want a footstool. Okay, and now we have to create this city, right? And Manat makes a similar point on page uh, 48, where he says, this is the middle of the middle paragraph. Let us admit that there is at bottom no difference between the intent to seize something by doing violence to its owner and that of obtaining it by freely given consent, since it is in both cases a matter of possessing what is desired. And that really confuses me because it seems like there's a really big difference between those two things. Yeah, I think, you know? I think you're agreeing with Manon, but you're disagreeing with Benjamin Constant. He's the one who's being quoted there. Constant's theory that we can sublimate conflict to economic trade, commerce, is what Manot believes is wrong. Say that one more time. Sorry. Uh, what he's doing here is, you know, Manot is brilliant and draws on an enormous range of sources. And this is an example of his drawing on a source and then I think really trying to reject that source. The source he's drawing is Benjamin Constant. And Constant essentially argued that commerce could replace warfare. Okay. And what Manant is, uh, I think, trying to do here is restate Constant's thesis on war, that there is at bottom no difference between intent to seize something and obtaining it by freely given consent. So you can substitute freely given consent for conquest. Mm -hmm. okay. Manant is going to go on and say it doesn't work that way. Yeah, is it he's saying something like, if human beings were simply acquisitive, yeah. then they wouldn't care whether they got it by bashing a guy over the head or right. buying something. As and so Constance says, got don't it. buy it. Let's not bash each other over the head. Right. There's something but, more going on with being human. Right, and it's this Rousseauian sense of amour yeah. propre, right, of wanting yeah. to be first. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, reveling in victory or feeling that you're better than somebody else. Right. Uh, it looks like that is, is claimed to be an essential part of, of human nature as well. Right, and that also enables common good. It enables, it, it both encourages warfare and enables a particular common good so that we can say we're Americans, we're exceptional. We have a better common good than uh, everyone else. Brian, does that help with your question? No, no, I, I'm going to, uh, you know, I am a, a still a knuckle dragging Marine at heart. So what, what I, uh, Constance argument that, um, 
commerce will replace warfare, which is, I think what we're agreeing that constant is saying sounds, sounds like a good deal to me, you know, and it might just be my, my modern humanist, um, you know, perspective coming out, which doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And so when Manat is saying that there isn't a difference between those two, I'm, I'm scratching my head a little bit because, you know, no, Manot saying there is Manot saying there is a difference between the two. The okay. two are not interchangeable, and they're not interchangeable because if you buy something, you have not just done the same thing as gaining something by conquest. Mm-hmm. There's something missing from the commercial transaction. And he says and maybe, in the next sentence from the one that you read: "By making mm-hmm. war simply a means to possess what one desires, get something by conquest, which could be done by commerce as well." Constant, Constant forgets that war is also desired for its own sake, that it can itself be the object of desire because it is only in war that certain human dispositions find their expression and that certain human experiences can be had. That is why, by the way, the politics of the city, the common good, is always precarious. Or it's one of the reasons that it's always precarious. You never get to some point of stability, of final stability, um, and the only way to do that, really, I think, Manon would say, would be to just wipe out human nature. And if you think about it, that's what the founder and father said as well. The founder said in the Federalist Papers, one of the ways to get rid of factions is to make all human nature the same. We don't want to do that. Or all human interests the same. Yeah. This is, uh, I think that's a great note to end on. This has been super fun. This has um, been a lot I, of fun. I really appreciate it. You guys have a great project. I thought about doing something similar to this, but I don't have the industriousness to do it. So <laughs> congratulations <laughs> to you for doing a great program. Well, yeah. you just find smart people like Jeff um, <laughs> and smart, smart guests like you, and then somebody who just turns on the microphones and makes sure that make sure they work and occasionally uses his radio voice to read selections. I've just been accused of possessing a Lockean virtue. I don't know how good I feel about this. <laughs> It'll take some pondering. It was a great pleasure. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Uh, well, thank That'd you, be Joe. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Joe. Um, listeners, again, check out the Institute of World Politics and Cana Academy. We'll be linking to both of those in the show notes, as well as some books from Pierre Manant. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it was great. As you can tell, I like talking about it. So thanks for giving me the chance. No, oh, our pleasure. Sure thing. All right. Bye, guys.